This sermon, Grace, God's Paradigm of Salvation, was preached by Tom Wilkins on Sunday, November 26, 2023, at Sovereign Grace Church. Good morning. If I could have you stand with me. And I would ask you to turn to the book of Judges. And turn to chapter 3, verse 7 through 11 is what I'll be reading. Judges, chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishah, Thaim, the king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan, Rishah, Thaim, eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan, Rishathaim, the king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. You may be seated. Please pray with me. Lord, it's moments like this when we find ourselves in your word where we begin to have a sense of your holiness that is present. And we do not know what to do. Suddenly, our sinfulness begins to flood into our minds as your holiness permeates your word and we begin to experience you personally through your word. Lord, those of us that are your sons and daughters by an act of your will and grace alone on us, your word comforts us in a moment like this, says that we can come into your presence with confidence that you will not wipe us out. But Lord, we 
we do. We find ourselves in your presence, and I pray that we would be humbled by your word. I also pray, God, that you would grant us gospel hope in today's text. The Lord, when you reveal your presence, you're also revealing your salvation. I pray there'd be a real sense of joy begin to also flood in as well, a hopefulness that would come over your people when we taste of your goodness, when we should only taste of your wrath. Let there be a real hope and a real joy flood our hearts. God, I pray for any person present this morning that is without you, that is lost without you. I pray, God, that you would move on them this morning and save them to yourself. That is always all you're doing. Be merciful to us, Lord. When our sins come to mind, even recent sins, be merciful to your people. Jesus, we now are very grateful for what you've done for us. You be exalted at the preached word that points to you. Holy Spirit, now come and superintend all of this. Amen. Amen. Oh, I had imagined praying something very different, but even as we read the text this morning, the Lord just laid it on my heart to be mindful of His holiness. If you join me just for a minute, what Derek referred to this last week as we talked through this as an excursion, that's a right way to do this. It's good that as we begin to get into a book that we realize, again, what's going on in this book of Judges. You may be new to us this morning, you may be visiting, you've come here over the holidays, so this will be helpful to you. We're going to revisit a couple of things right at the beginning to bring us back into the context of where we are in Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, where we are today. Let's survey this just for a minute. This book of Judges we have already learned, particularly in the first sermon that was preached as the opening of Judges unfolds for us. It is a fascinating book. It's colorful. And it's dark. There are moments of epic highs, but then there are some of the deepest lows. Sometimes it's very clear what God is doing. And then you just turn the page, and then you and I are bewildered by what's happening. We begin to wonder, Lord, what are you doing? scratch our heads at times when we read through Judges. Chapter 2, in particular, verses 11 through 23, which we have heard recently preached, there is a larger repeating cycle that is described in verses 11 through 23 for at least six of the judges that will come throughout the book of Judges. There's a repeated cycle and each of these, and in this cycle, and each of these cycles is about seven basic parts. And almost every one, when we get to those judges, and today is one of them, almost every one of them will include most, if not all, of these parts. Today we get most of them. But here are those seven basic parts. The people sin against the Lord. They turn away from him to idol worship. The Lord disciplines them by selling them into the hands of their foreign enemies. Real people, real time, real kingdoms, 
real history. The people then cry out for deliverance. will be that third part of the cycle. They cry out for deliverance. And a divine word is often spoken to the people. That one doesn't occur today. But right back to this, the Lord raises up a deliverer. They cry out and the Lord raises up a judge, a deliverer. To save his people from the oppression of their enemies. And peace reigns for a time. That's number six. And number seven, in that cycle, the judge dies. Bringing an end to the cycle and setting up the next. Which would take us right back to the beginning. The people sin against the Lord. In today's story, in chapter 3, verse 11, we have that theological pattern from chapter 2 as that grid that overlays. So if you wonder, how does this section, how does it fit? It's almost like the movie that you and I would be watching that begins to tell the story. Then you know, oh, wait a minute, we've gone back in time and now it's given us some more detail. Well, in this particular case, today's story, we have the theological pattern that we looked at in that cycle in chapter 2. Now it begins to take on real flesh, real names, real places, and real times. Today, we get to our first judge. This cycle, sadly, we're going to find out, is repeated as we meet characters to follow the deliverer and judges that are coming like Ehud next week. We get to Deborah and Barak. They're together. Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. I grew up in a little Pentecostal church, and the way we did children's ministry was the felt board. Those of you that are my age and older know what this is. I remember, I'm, you have to remember, if you think I'm scrawny now, imagine me when I'm like six or seven. I mean, my parents are like shoveling food into me, and I'm just barely living. Samson, to me, was a hero. That's the way he was taught in my Sunday school. He's the strong guy who comes on and wipes out thousands. We get to him later. We're going to discover actually Samson is the end of the judges because of how degraded things have become. The degradation in this degradation, excuse me, in this cycle is the people downward spiral in morality. It gets worse and worse and worse. And lo and behold, we find that God's activity with the judges is he brings a deliverer to them, and that deliverer is downgraded as well. He's degrading over time as well. Something is desperately wrong. But today, today, we're going to see the grand pattern of God's salvation that marks all of redemptive history in our text the grand pattern of salvation that marks all of redemptive history are going to, find, are going to be found in these two points. One, they forgot their Lord. They forgot him. And two, he did not forget them. That pattern is repeated throughout redemptive history, isn't it not? They forget him. He will not forget them. So number one, point number one, they forgot him. They forgot the Lord. Read again Judges 3, 7, and 8. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger 
of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Kishan Rishathaim, the king of Mesopotamia. They forgot him. This forgetting of the Lord that's described here in verse 7 is evil in his sight. In chapter 2, verse 17, it's likened to the unfaithful woman who has turned away from her faithful husband and sells herself to other men. I can't pull punches on this one. In a sense, what we're seeing now in the people of Israel, they have turned away from their faithful husband, the Lord, abandoning him for other boyfriends, other men, giving themselves to illicit marriages, to these other gods, these other men of the world, the Baals. The biblical language is stark and the imagery is revolting, but the Lord becomes to them unattractive, unsatisfying, undesirable. In their minds that have turned to worldliness, their very creator and sustainer and provider and protector has become to them unnecessary, uncaring, not providing enough for him, weak. They forgot him, their living holy God, and ran and have run after dead and filthy gods. Here's some relief just for a brief moment. Last year at our pastor's conference, Derek picked the best breakout for us to get our team away and to experience something uh, exciting out in Florida. No, it wasn't Disney. He took our team onto the campus, best way to describe it, of Ligonier Ministries. They're at Ligonier Ministries. They're the Ligonier Ministries uh, offices, Reformation Bible College, a few steps away across beautiful grass field, St. Andrew's Chapel. And here we saw the man who is the centerpiece of this, which is R.C. Sproul, humanly speaking, is behind a lot of what is going on at this campus. Certainly Christ is the one at work. But we saw R.C. Sproul's office, got to see his library, got to walk the halls that R.C. Sproul got to walk. We lost R.C. Sproul, finally succumbing to sickness in 2017. What an amazing reformer. Out on the fields, we, not too far from St. Andrew's, I love, I love St. Andrew's building. It's a cruciform chapel. It is absolutely beautiful. And out across the grass, not far from the entrance, was R.C. Sproul's gravesite. And at his gravesite, all of us got pictures there. You can Google it. You'll see people have their picture taken at his gravesite. The epitaph on R.C. Sproul's gravestone reads, He was a man redeemed. Excuse me. He was a kind man redeemed by a kinder Savior. That's the epitaph over R.C.'s life. I'm sure his precious wife had some say as to what went on that stone. He was a kind man. Somehow R.C. inserted the last part. We don't know how he did it. Redeemed by a kinder Savior. (laughs) C.J. years ago in a message preached, this is decades ago, he said this about the nation 
and the people of Israel. The epitaph on the gravestone of the people of Israel often read, they soon forgot. Is this not what we do? You and I find ourselves suddenly in the text. We have here in the second part of verse 7, they forgot their Lord, their God. And they served the Baals and Asheroth. This is not a neutral forgetting. It's an active turning away. We've heard recently, this is not just a forgetfulness, like suddenly we stopped thinking about the Lord like I do when I'm fishing. Just hours, and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, the Lord. No, something much graver. Their forgetting of the Lord equaled their serving of the idols, namely the Baals and Asherah. Every time we read now in the scriptures, we have forgot the Lord. It means they have turned from him. The people of Israel have turned away from the Lord, but they're continuing to worship. They now stop worshiping him, and they turn to the worship of the Baals, the Asherah. Listen to our previous messages regarding these idols. It's it's shocking, actually. And the result that we find immediately in the text of them forgetting is this kindled the Lord's anger. Their forgetting of the Lord now results in grave consequences. In verses 7, in the first part of 8, there was evil in the sight of the Lord, and it kindled God's anger against them. We cannot miss this. In all of creation, in all of history, there is someone that you and I do not want to anger Isn't that true? Think about that just for a moment. That if you woke up one morning and you found out your wife greets you in the kitchen or your husband greets you in the kitchen and says, Honey, the Lord is angry with you. We cannot miss this. God is holy and his holy anger is now on fire. He sees all of their sinfulness. He sees all of their turning away from him, not just some of it, every part of it, every motive behind every part of it. And he, he is set on fire in anger. This provokes him to discipline. And in his righteous anger, he moves immediately to discipline his people. He sells them into the hand of Kashan Rishathaim. Barry Webb says this, about him selling them into the hand of this king. They are not snatched from God's hand. No tyrant has the power to do that, but literally sold by him in a deliberate transaction that he initiates and controls. It is a carefully measured act of discipline in which the punishment fits the crime. Those who serve foreign gods are made to serve a foreign ruler. And those who do evil are handed over to one who is wicked. Now, let's look at this king that we have in verse 8. This Kushan Rishathaim. This king's name, Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia here in the ESV. The original Hebrew rendering of his name provides a huge clue to the kind of king, the kind of man he was, the type of rule that he ruled with. Kishan 
Rishathaim, king of, in literal translation, Aram, Naharaim. It rhymes. Kushan Rishathaim, Aram, Naharaim. Some of the commentators says this is actually a humorous and a pointed dig at him and at the nation of Israel. His name is referenced four times. That's why you keep hearing me struggle to say his name again and again. You hear four times in three verses, and by nature, it's in-your-face kind of use of his name. I think the people of Israel said, you've said it enough. You've mentioned it enough. And the Lord said, no, I haven't. Here's why. This Kushan Rashithaim, king of Aram, Naharaim, quite literally means this, the Kushan king of double wickedness, king of two rivers. How do you get the title double wickedness? He's referred to, is this Israel's title for him? Maybe. Is this history's title for him? Definitely. This is a wicked man. If you use that phrase within Hebrew called double wickedness, it means wicked, wicked. That's not good, not good. It's evil, evil. Referencing leaders in history like uh, Antiochus, Epiphanes, Nero, Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, the Antichrist, Satan, Barry G. Webb uses this statement. He says, from Israel's day to our own, there have been many embodiments of evil. Kushan Rishathaim has lived many times. What's the point of all of this? Why all of this laboring about this sin and this king? First, our sin is great. Nation of Israel's sin is great. And God's discipline is severe, selling them into their own sin and oppression. God's discipline, no matter how severe, is also just. It's completely just what he has done. Don't forget, you have forgotten me and have turned to your wickedness. You have forgotten me, your God, and you have run after like horrors running after other men. I can't veil that for you. That's what he is saying. You wicked people will now serve a double wicked king. This, for you and I, it begs some honest questions. So, instead of avoiding it, which is what I would like to do personally, let's jump in and ask the questions. Have you forgotten the Lord your God? Or maybe another way that we can begin to answer it is asking another question. Are you in bed with other gods? Impurity feels good. And can be accessed easily. Holiness and purity are too hard to maintain. Maybe it started with something that you wanted, but knew was sinful. But thinking that you could mock God or do this anyway, you jumped in. 
there's a truth that is beginning to emerge in the book of Judges that not only are they turning from their living God to a dead God, actually what they're doing is they're trying to do what's called syncretize the two, syncretism, which is I want to be, I want to attempt to have both my loving devotion to the living God and also devote myself to the dead gods of this world and the attached immorality. So I'm going to try to live holy before my holy God who I know is real and I'm going to run headlong into that which is satisfying and tempting to me. And I'm going to try to do the both. And the Lord clarifies the matter for us. You cannot intermingle the two of them. You will either love me or you will hate me. You will be for me or you will be against me. You and I, from our perspective, thinks we, get, we think we get both. That I can have my love and devotion for the Lord. And I can have my love and devotion for these things of the world that so entice me. No wonder we have forgot Him. Because one of the things we have forgot is that He would allow it even for the rest of our lives. Or even allow it for a moment or for a time without some sort of intervention and consequence and discipline. Have you forgotten the Lord your God? How about this? Does, maybe this is being answered. Is, does the idol or the God of yourself begin to cloud your vision? It's all about you and your emotions and your feelings. You actually, right now, you can remember conflicts with other people and not just your spouse, or not just those in your family, you've heard more than once. That's so selfish. Have you turned to the God of yourself? And I also want to go after one thing that's popular today. I want to go after it because I believe the Scripture speaks directly to this. Is this what's now called, in a popular phrase, deconstructing of one's faith? We've heard it. We heard it even last week's message. We've now given a new spin on something that is possible. Someone is out there or they think that's possible, or I think it's possible, that I can go back and deconstruct my faith. But I would submit that deconstructing of one's faith is actually turning away from God. Not trying to figure out how to live it differently with Him. It's turning away from Him. Here's how we know that. We begin to blame everyone in our past for what we're doing, for what our struggle is. I'm this way because he did this or she said that. We find ourselves doing exactly what the people of Israel have done. They run to the idols of this world. Remember, it's not just deconstructing our faith. Lord, I don't know quite yet about how I'm going to relate to you. This is hard. No, it actually has, Lord, I don't know quite how to relate to you regarding my trust in you because I trust this more. This feels better. I like this. Uh, Humorously, I'm sorry, things come to me. Things come to me when I'm getting ready on Sunday morning. I thought, should I say this or not? But I'm going to say this. Look, if this is you, don't I love our puppy dog. 
I remember telling one of the Aranda boys, oh, I love that car. Why would you say you love it? So if you're wrestling with why I said I love our puppy dog, just bear with me. I do. I like our dog. I think she's part of our family. Something has desperately gone wrong if pets become, in the end, our final answer for therapy or for comfort. I saw the cutest, ugly dog in the airport recently. I don't know how to say it. You all know what I'm talking about. They're probably little, a little uh, bulldog of some sort. Cute, ugly. How in the world can we in the end call them emotional support? Lord, I don't know if I can trust you, but I can find comfort in my pet. Now look, don't go home and say, well, I'm not going to listen to Tom anymore. I'm going to go home and I'm going to pet my dog, but I, if I find comfort that can only come from the Lord in my dog, try not to look at anybody. If I'm trying to find comfort in anyone, I mean, in anyone other than the Lord, is that not what the nation of Israel has done? Is that not us? Derek's super happy I brought up this pet thing. He's so glad that I brought this up. Next question, I'm going to move on. How has the world become so, attra- or has the world become so attracted, attractive to you that you're forgetting the beauty and steadfast love of the Lord your God? Just consider his beauty of his majesty. Is something more beautiful to you than that? Have you forgot? He is the ultimate definition of good and faithful and steadfast. Maybe you're at the window of the door of your home that God has made for you, gazing out there and longing for what is out there. And the boundaries that God has given you, they are good. But now those boundaries have become like shackles to you or they're boring. You wish you could be set free from him. Has the love of money become so attractive to you that it's almost like a drug? That it brings you like, okay, we're going to be okay. I just looked at the accounts. We're going to be okay. Has that replaced that? No, I'm okay because the Lord is the one who has spun this universe into being. He's the one that will allow the crops to grow. He's the one that allows the running water in my house to continue to run. Where have we received anything good but from the Lord? And by the way, the elixir high of money, you have to admit this is the case. Because as soon as the accounts dip, we begin to worry. We're no longer, we can't experience that high, that sense of security, that sense of well-being. I'm okay is now gone. We're not going to be okay. And we begin to scrabble and strive and struggle and fear. Your money, your pets, I'm gonna, I don't have, we need something more solid up here. <laughs> have you turned away from the Lord, from the Lord in forgetfulness? We forget him. But, that's point one, but the good news is, is that his discipline of handing us over to this wicked king is used as actually a means of his grace to wake us up to our need for him. His discipline is an act of his grace as well. 
he's not withdrawn grace in his care for us. He's like, no, you've run from me. You need to know you've run from me. And he hands us over to discipline as an act of reminding us of himself. They did forget their God, but God will now move to deliver them and grant them rest. He has not forgot us. He has not forgot his people. Point one, we have forgot him. The epitaph over our gravestone is we have often forgot him. Too often have forgot him. And he comes along and grinds it off the gravestone. Redeemed by a kinder Savior is all that's left. He has not forgot us. He hears now, or we hear now in verse 9, if you'll look there with me. The people of Israel served this wicked king, you get to pronounce it now, eight years. Year after year after year after year and on and on seemingly. But when the people, in verse 9, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people who saved them. We must see how shocking this is, by the way. In the middle of our sins, we cry out for help. All we should get back from heaven is utter silence until we're finally wiped out. It should not have been eight years. Another gracious statement, by the way, in the text It should have been forever I've handed you over to double wickedness. Forever. What a shocking description of what hell will be if we will not repent and turn to Christ. Forever double wickedness. Forever triple complete wickedness. It's shocking that the Lord hears their cry. And oh, how kind of God, if one of the things we desperately do not want is to know that God is angry with us, the greatest thing we need to know is that God hears our cry. And clearly we know the implication from this is it is a cry and a help for salvation. One, to be delivered, obviously, from the evil and oppressive hand of this king, but we also know that when the people of Israel would cry out to the Lord from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, if my people who were called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, and turn away from wickedness, what? I will come and save them. I will come and heal their land. The Lord had not forgotten them. This is not simply a recalling us into the mind of God. So here's not just our like, you know, like, oh my gosh, I forgot about God. This is not like the Lord has like, all of a sudden, oh, I remember my people. Uh, I didn't hear their cry before. Now I hear their cry. Suddenly it comes to mind, no, this is God's remembrance in his covenant. This is God's remembrance of his people and his promise. The Lord said from the very beginning, putting Adam and Eve out of the garden, he has covered their sins. And the message now begins to ring clear across the world. I will make a covenant and a promise with my people, and I will hold fast to this covenant. In fact, when he comes to Abraham, he says, the punishment will actually be on me if I break the covenant with you. Go and read that account. It's an amazing one. He remembers us in his steadfast love. We stop 
loving him. He never stops loving us. And we are talking about his covenant people, those that do turn and run to him in forgiveness. We have to see this is the pattern in Judges we're going to continue to hear again and again and again. We are going to hear, and they sinned against the Lord. We are going to hear, they turned to the Baals, they turned and worship. It gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse. But you know what does not get worse, but only gets grander and greater and larger? His mercy, His grace, His salvation. God has not forgotten His people. We cannot move on, though, by, by the way, from verse 9 too quickly. Listen to what this one commentator says uh, on, uh, chapter, uh, on chapter 3, verse 9. He says, our primary problem is that verse 9 moves us to only yawn. After all, we already know the theological truth of verse 9. We've read that sort of thing before. So we respond with a please Nodding, ho-hum. Isn't God nice? What's for supper? If we fail to see, to feel, to delight in the miracle of God's own nature, are we not strangers to rather than partakers of such unbelievable grace? So before we go any further, look at verse 9 again. Look at verse 9. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the people. Have you already? Like right now in this room. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. That's the gospel. That's, that's right. God always saves his people. Okay, great. Man, true land is starting to sound really good about right now. Football. It's coming. Have we done that so quickly? Have you and I got to the place where we have failed to see and delight in the miracle of God's unbelievable grace. And we hear this same repeat. They cry out to the Lord in their distress, and the Lord hears their cry and saves them. Do you hear that? He saves them. He delivers them. He rescues them. This is unbelievable grace. And God is moved by pity, is the description in chapter 2. Remember chapter 2 paints what that pattern is going to be. One of the patterns is God shows pity on his people. When we should only show his wrath, he shows pity. This should not be the case. Maybe another way we could say this is not just simply that God did not forget them, or God has not forgot them, is God would not forget them. It's not on his mind to forget us. It's not on his mind to leave us in our sins if we belong to him. God's remembrance of them is now seen in his merciful raising up a deliverer to lead them into rest. There is a grander deliverer coming. And so he gives us this guy named Othniel to begin to point a foreshadowing of that deliverer who is going to come. You're going to see that, boy, if these judges are going to be a foreshadowing of the deliverer to come, I don't know about that. So I'm going to say straight on, Othniel, unlike any of the other judges to come, 
has a clearer or a better picture of what is to come. Let's look at this. Very little said about this deliverer, Othniel. We know this about him in verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. In chapter 113, and stated here in the text as well, is Othniel is Caleb's younger brother, a successful leader. In fact, what we know from the original telling in chapter 1 and verse 13 is there is a foreshadowing of this greater deliverer coming, and we know that by Othniel. One of the kings says, hey, if you take out this land, you get my daughter. He is the winner of the prize bride. And now what we have here is that foreshadowing. And we have that sense in the text of the foreshadowing of, of what is coming in the greater deliverer who will be given the grandest prize, earthly speaking, the church herself given to Christ, her husband. And note the emphasis here in chapter 3. It is God's choice for them, not their own choice. They've not raised up Othniel. God has given him as a deliverer to them. In fact, the very meaning of his name, if you look it up, for those of you who want to name your child Othniel, it's going to say God's lion. I love those kind of definitions. You have to dig a little further to get closer to the name. It literally means God's strength for his people. There's a lot in that Hebrew translation. If you have named your child Othniel, I want to meet him. I want to meet that little lion. What a beautiful picture of the lion of the tribe of Judah to come as well. But it's God's favor on his people is this man's name in that sense. This deliverer is by and large a mystery. But the point is so that what God is doing is not a mystery. God is the one who is saving. Now I'm going to begin to close this point and wrap up this sermon. Verse 11. Verse 11. We've just looked at that there has been an agent of discipline. Now what we know about Othniel is he's God's agent of grace, and both of them obviously agents of grace, but an agent of discipline now be given to the nation of Israel is an agent of grace in Othniel. And listen to what it says at the first part of verse 11. So the land had rest for 40 years. One commentator was straight on. Don't go too heavenly on this. I'm paraphrasing this commentator. So you get the east side slandered version on a commentator. Don't run too fast into heaven with this one. This literally meant in the land these people were going to be finally at rest, finally set free from this oppressive, evil, evil dictator. They're finally at rest for 40 years. Oh, I love that they were under the hand of this man for eight years, and God gives them a long-lasting rest seemingly to them. How kind of God, and certainly grace in what he grants them. God's grace also in the deliverers he gives attached to that deliverer rest to the land. And then we get to the end of verse 11. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, dies. End of that cycle, that pattern. Recall the cycle 
and the downward spiral from the story. Verse 11 includes the death of this first deliverer. The death of Othniel is a clue that the cycle is about to restart. That downward spiral now is beginning to be foretold. You can see what's coming next week. The people of Israel, verse 12, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It continues to move downward. But, but, this cycle has been interrupted now on this side of the cross. It has been interrupted by the glorious gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, has come. So over the years and over the ages, downward, 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 only doing what is right in their own eyes. Every one of us turning to our own way, like sheep running astray, downward, downward, downward. And the cross interrupts the downward draw it out on a piece of paper, the spiral down, 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 and interrupting and stopping this downward spiral is Jesus, the Son of God. What an amazing place we find ourselves in the Judges, in this book of Judges, as we head into the Christmas season. Tell you a little bit about what's coming. We're going to preach about Jesus coming during the Christmas season, coming to die. Othniel brings that present pattern to ultimately, that ultimately points to the greater deliverer, Jesus. Certainly, not much is spoken regarding Othniel, so that we will see that greater Savior that we need. All of this points his people to their need for that greater Savior himself, Jesus Emmanuel, God with us. No man throughout history will be able to bring them to the rest that's being described and that we will finally need in this world. But here in verse 11, it is also doing something else. We have, for the people of Israel, people of Israel have the death of their deliverer, the death of Othniel, the death of that judge that marks they're about to return to their sins again. But what we have in the gospel is the death of the greatest deliverer, Jesus. And that will mark not the beginning of our sinful downward spiral again. That will mark the end of our sin if we'll turn to Him and believe in Him for salvation. His death, that final deliverer's death, brings an end to sin. Instead of a judge dying and the people turning away, turning away back to sin, Jesus takes away our sin upon himself, and God's anger burns against him, our sin bearer, instead of against us. This deliverer that is coming, this greater deliverer that has come, Jesus dies, and we live. What an amazing interruption to the downward spiral. Again and again and again, we go right back to it, right back to it. We are right, no. Christ has come and has brought an end to this. This is how we get to Jesus in the book of Judges. We will run into about 14 or more judges throughout this book. Every single time, we're going to end up right back at our desperate need for the grand deliverer in Jesus, the great deliverer in Jesus, the only judge that can truly save us. This is the message of Judges in all of the chaos of sin and depravity and disgust 
and filthiness is the necessity of the pure and holy one from heaven who has come in the manger, the deliverer who has finally come to us. And by the way, redemptive history is continuing to march on through this. There is an unrelenting stop to the nature of the gospel and the power of the gospel. Everyone on the planet that is breathing right now has this hope held out to them if we will only deliver it to them. And if they will only respond in forgiveness. This is redemptive history. And we will see that in this book that none of the judges can save because only God can save. And God has come, God the Son, to save His own. The cross speaks loud. He never forgot us. If I could have the choir come to the stage. We had some humor this last week. All of us call it something different. I always call it the band, but today we're going to call it what Tim calls it, the choir. A little humor for you, Tim. The only hope that we have after forgetting our God is that in His mercy, He will not forget us. You can summarize everything we've heard in this text today with that. The only hope we have after forgetting our God is that in His mercy, He will not forget us. If you're present this morning and have not believed in Christ, now, now when that downward spiral of your life, the day of judgment for you is coming, but now is God's time of favor and salvation for you. Turn to Him now. Call to the unbeliever. I mean, call to God and the unbeliever in the room has help and hope. Are you present? You've heard this before. Maybe you're hearing it in a new way. In God's kindness, He is not forgetting you to declare this message to you. Hear the hope of salvation in Christ. It's the only hope that you have. Turn to Christ and to believe that He can rescue you from that downward spiral to final loss, to final death. He will save you and make you alive. If I could have you stand, please. Ask these two questions of yourself when you leave today. Are you at rest in your relationship with God? And be honest. Be honest before the Lord who sees it all. And ask yourself this question. Have you wondered if God has forgotten you? One, are you at rest in your relationship with Him? And two, have you wondered if God has forgotten you?